Lord, very specifically, I pray that you would use this message to awaken our hearts for good deeds, including engagement for the unborn, including a possible crisis pregnancy center in Phillips neighborhood or thereabouts, driven by our church and other churches, fresh new ventures in adoption at home and abroad, all manner of mercies and compassion, not just on this particularly painful issue, but many others. Guard us, oh my God, from being an ingrown church or ingrown families. May our children grow up to be engaged with the wider, big, global, eternal, spiritual, and social issues of their time and not escapists. Oh God, be pleased, I pray, to make a name for Jesus, your son, through the young people of this church. Lots of them are away on retreat right now. God, touch Gary. Feel him. Pour out your spirit on him as he preaches to those teenagers. Grant that they would come home aflame for righteousness. And now meet us here in this word, I pray. And accomplish more things than I could ever dream to ask. Healing bodies and minds and souls and families and empowering and mobilizing and emboldening for great ventures in righteousness. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Now over the years, as we've been preaching on this issue for maybe 15 years or so, once a year, I have developed, and you will remember if you've been around for a while, a long list of reasons for why we think abortion is wrong. I sort of tend to take that for granted. And yet it occurred to me that in the last uh, two years, maybe seven, eight hundred new people have come to this church, and uh, it might be good to rehearse some of that list, and so I will. Reasons why... Abortion is wrong, and why most pro-choice people know it is wrong and should not be pursued. But before I give you that list, partial list, let me say a word to the women in the room who have had abortions and to the men who have perhaps uh, encouraged it or demanded it. Uh, Every year I realize this is a painful Sunday. I hear from you. And uh, I try to do better every year at this because I know you're there. I want you to know that. First of all, I know you're there. What I'm about to say, I'm not saying with indifference, nor do I want to make you miserable. I want all of our social engagement, including this issue and last Sundays and others, to be built on this foundation, namely... Everybody in this room starts from the same place. Mistake. Error. Failure. And the need for Jesus Christ's blood to cover our sin. We're all talking to each other as failures. Alright? I didn't get an abortion. I could list you mine. We're talking... At ground level here before the cross about a bloodshedding Christ who takes us from our post-abortion misery into engagement for Christ and righteousness. 
And I know there's a time gap there that has to go by. And I don't know where you are on that time gap. And so don't feel unduly hurried. If you're here and not here, when you hear me blow a trumpet this morning for engagement for the cause of life, someday you'll be ready. And you'll be great. And you men who seem to get off so easy, hear the same word. I saw a beautiful picture. I forget what website it was on. I was, I was just going all over the place reading about all our abortion clinics in the cities and all of our pro-life ministries on the web in the last few days. And one had a, a picture of this man with a dream looking out the window at his eight-year-old that he'd be pitching with, pitching ball with. And he had made his wife have an abortion. It's a man thing and a woman thing. The women get most of the attention because it affects them most immediately, probably most painfully, but no man can put down his foot and say, you get that thing out of there or I'm out of here and live with himself easily the rest of his life. So before I gave the list, I wanted you to hear that. The gospel of Christ crucified for sinners is where we stand whenever we talk about social issues. Is that clear? And we all meet there on the same ground. In fact, I, I, I jotted down here to, to read from my yesterday's devotions these words from Jesus. Hear this, women and men in that category. And re, really, let all of you hear this as a breeze, a breeze from heaven blowing across your guilty souls. Hear this. The Pharisees said to Jesus' disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Or you might add, those who give and get abortions. Why is your, why is your master eating with them? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is a really sweet word. Jesus came into the world as a physician looking for sin-sick people to heal, not an assessor looking for sacrifices to say nice to. Let that land on you. Now, here are reasons. I have 11 of them. It's going to tick them off like this. Every one could be a sermon, but I want you to have it. So that those of you who haven't been around for the last 12 or 13 years will know the kinds of things we've been talking about. Number one, in Minnesota, the fetal homicide law makes it makes a person guilty of manslaughter or worse if he kills a baby in a mother's womb, whether in a traffic accident or an assisted suicide or any other kind of way, unless the mother agrees to have it done. And I ask, who is willing to live with the moral implications of making a person's being wanted the criterion of its right to life? Who is willing to live with that? Number two, there is an inconsistency between doing fetal surgery on a baby in the womb to save it 
at, say, 21 weeks. And down the hall, having this baby's cousin chopped to pieces and removed from the womb. There's an inconsistency there that our culture cannot survive. And people know that. Three. A baby can live on its own outside the womb at about 23 or 24 weeks, and it's moving back, it seems, all the time. Yet, pro-choice people, many of them, most of them, say it can be killed even at or beyond that age if the mother will be distressed by its live birth more than she is by the abortion. And I ask, what morally significant factor will prevent them then from saying that two babies at 23 or 24 weeks old, one born and in the neonatal unit down at Children's Hospital, and one not born can both be killed because the distress is too much for the parents. Fourth, a baby's living without an umbilical cord that is outside the womb is not the criterion of human personhood and the condition of the right to life. We know this because our living on a respirator or a dialysis machine does not jeopardize our personhood. It is irrelevant to personhood how our blood gets cleaned and how we get our oxygen, tube or no tube. Number Five, the size of a human being is irrelevant to human personhood. We know this because we do not make size a criterion of personhood outside the womb. A one-month-old is much smaller than a five-year-old, and we do not threaten the life of the one-month-old because he's little. On one of the web pages for the pro-life clinics near us, they say that the abortion that they do the most of has a baby this size. This is 11 to 13 weeks here. If the little children wanted to see this, I could leave it here at the front. But if, if, if where you are, you can see this baby has a head, eyes, nose, ears, feet, arms, fingers. This is a wonderfully formed little human person at about... 13 weeks of gestation. Almost all abortions are done on babies this size. Many much larger. Many much larger. And my point is, outside the womb, size is irrelevant to personhood, and therefore I can think of no morally significant fact that would make size inside the womb a relevant issue when it comes to personhood. This has been lying on my desk for 15 years, and I hope it stays there. Number six, developed reasoning powers are not the criterion of personhood. We know this because a one-month-old baby outside the womb does not have them either, and yet, at least not yet in our culture, is not in jeopardy because of that. Seven, scientifically, we, we know that human beings, by virtue of their genetic makeup, are human beings. Their genetic code is not like a monkey's or a whale or an or porpoise 
or any other kind of animal from the very moment that the egg and the sperm meet. This is unique. Eight. At eight weeks old, in other words, much younger than this, at eight weeks old, all the organs are present. The brain is functioning, the heart is pumping, the liver is making blood cells, the kidney is cleaning the fluids, the fingers have fingerprints, and yet almost all abortions are done later than that. Number nine, ultrasound has given a window into the womb of remarkable clarity. And we see the eight-week-old fetus sucking her thumb or recoiling from pinpricking or responding to sound. We can see these pictures in Life magazine or in many books by famous photographers, or you can go on the MCCL website this afternoon and go to the Stages of Life window and look at every one of them. Nobody can avoid this except by willful ignorance. And what we look like matters. If you lined up a group of monkeys, giraffes, elephants, frogs, and humans, and then said, go ahead, see if you can pick out the human. See if you can do it. See if looks matter here. You'd, you'd be able to pick out the human. Looks matter. Pictures matter. We need pictures before the world. Number 10. There is a principle of justice that when two legitimate rights conflict, say the right of a woman not to be pregnant and the right of a baby not to be killed, there is a principle of justice that says you restrain the right that would do the greatest harm. Which is why none of you has a right to drive 100 miles an hour on the way home from this church down 11th Avenue. Why? You're free. Don't cram my style with a simple reason. Your right to drive 100 miles an hour compared to another person's right not to be killed is smaller. This, this right yields to that right. Because more harm is done if you drive 100 miles an hour than if you don't. And so it is in the conflicting rights between a woman's right not to be pregnant and a baby's right not to be killed. They're not in the same class, even. Finally, number 11. The Word of God says, Thou shalt not kill. And many abortions, in fact, abortionists, in fact, I would say today, most abortionists admit they are killing human beings. They don't uh, put that in their literature, but if you talk to them long enough, I've talked to two extensively. One, when I was in jail about 10 years ago over this with Rod, and he was there in the next cell, and we were talking to this nurse who finally, after 45 minutes, said, all right, all right, all right, yes, they're humans, and yes, we're killing them, but. And then we took an abortionist from the Midwest Health Center out to lunch. His name was Bill Long, and uh, he worked there, and his wife worked there, and I laid out reasons why I thought he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. And I, I built my whole case on the fact that they're human beings. And when I was done, I thought the case was closed. And he said, I know they're human beings. And I know we're killing them. Those are his words. We kill human babies. His whole argument was, it's the lesser of two evils. Women must have freedom of reproductive rights. When you weigh these two together, for him, there was no question. So it, it doesn't even do anymore in conversation to argue that they're human beings. They know that. Nevertheless, the killing goes on. 
About five blocks that way is the uh, Meadowbrook Clinic in the high rise across from the old hospital at the corner of 9th and uh, Chicago and 8th. Down that way, walking distance to Park and 24th is uh, Mildred Hansen. She specializes in late abortions, did about 1,200 last year. And down here at Hennepin and 5th is the Midwest Health Center. You take those three uh, abortion clinics within walking distance of this church, and they did 8,000 abortions last year, roughly. There are good signs. I just read last week that among nurses... The numbers are plummeting of those who are willing to be engaged in this sort of thing. For example, 60% of nurses now say that they will not work in an OBGYN unit where abortions are performed, compared to 48% a decade ago. So the number of nurses, the percentage of nurses that will not even work in an OBGYN unit where abortions are performed has gone from 48 to 60% in the last 10 years. I wonder why that is. What's going on among the nurses who see more clearly than anything? Right here at home, one of the most encouraging things for me is that yesterday there were about 250 people at our pro-life brunch and about 190 went to the Capitol. That's five times what we've ever had at a pro-life weekend getting on buses. Where did that come from? God bless you, Pro-Life Task Force, for your work, and may your tribe increase. So my aim this morning, as we turn to this text, is to inspire all of us to more and more uh, social, cultural, personal engagement in the cause of life, unborn and born. And I, I want to try to make a case... That Bible people, fundamental people, evangelical people who believe in soul winning and evangelism and heaven and hell as the big issues in life are not compromising their standards when they are socially engaged like this, but rather the very Bible that drives us to care about eternity. And the Bible that drives us to care about spiritual salvation and the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life is vastly more important than physical life. That very Bible and those very concerns will also motivate and mobilize us into good deeds like crisis pregnancy care and adoption and the working for the cause of the unborn. I hope you'll see that before I'm done. So would you open your Bibles again if you shut them to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 17, and in the last 15 minutes or so, here's what I want to do. I want to give you six foundational truths for Christian involvement in culture. Christ, culture, and abortion. I think that's the title of the sermon. Is that what I put down? Yes. Christ, culture, and abortion. The reason I stuck in that word culture is because I do... Hope that what I say will have a bigger implication in your life than just abortion. Because we're all, we're not all supposed to be involved at the same level in every issue. God forbid that we would be a, a one issue church. There are hundreds of things that cry out for the attention of mercy and justice. 
in the world. And so the question is the bigger one, and I hope to address that as we go. So six foundational truths about a Christian involvement in society and culture. Number one, we were all once in darkness along with the world. Verse 9 at the end, the little phrase, him who has called you out of darkness. Him who has called you out of darkness. Once you were in darkness. Nobody in this room came into light out of light. Nobody was born in light in this room. We are dark people. There's a darkness on our hearts. Except, now this is point number two. So point number one, we were all in darkness. My heart was dark with ignorance, dark with rebellion, dark with sin, dark with opposition to God's ways. Even if I was just a little child, it was dark. And then, second principle, we have been called by God out of darkness. So, if you ask, why is it there, there are some people who have seen the darkness as dark and move away from the darkness into light so that they can look back on the darkness and say, that's dark. Let's not do that. What happened? Answer, the call of God happened. The call of God happened. What answer are you going to give? Are you going to say, I was smarter than all those worldly people. I was wiser than all those worldly people. I was more courageous than all those worldly people. I was more spiritually insightful than all those worldly people. I took myself by the dark bootstraps and with my dark arms and my dark back, I drew up my dark self into light. Is that what you're going to say? Don't say that. Say, God, with his omnipotent, let there be light kind of, Word spoke into my dark heart and said, let there be light. And there was light, I know not how. And I saw Jesus as glorious. I saw the cross as beautiful. That's the way Paul puts it, isn't it? In uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, to the Gentiles' foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, He is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. How did Christ become power to you? How did he appear as as victorious and beautiful and glorious to you? Answer, God called you out of darkness into light. Therefore, as you look back on a world in darkness, don't ever puff yourself up by saying, why can't those jerks get their act together like I did? Don't ever think like that. Don't ever, ever think like that. Think freely you have received. Freely give. Now that leads me to point number three. Give what? What do you you mean? Give. Give. Here's point number three. Here's foundational truth number three. First we were dark. Then we were called into light. Now here's number three. God's aim in calling us out of darkness into light is to send us back. To the darkness to proclaim his excellencies. Let's read all of verse 9. You are a chosen race. You're chosen. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. Here's the reason. So that you may 
Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, people, don't let advertisers tell you your reason for being. Don't let your employment place define your reason for existence. Don't let Wall Street define your reason for existence. Don't let the university define it. Don't let movies define it. Let God define your reason for existence. And there it is. We were called out of darkness into light so that we might proclaim His excellencies. That's why you were created and converted. And this is clear as a bell in Scripture, isn't it? I mean, you don't need a preacher to read that verse and get it. That you may proclaim His excellencies. You want a reason for being God Almighty who made you, who will call you to account and welcome you into a glory, will assess you with a clear job description. So clear. Make my excellencies known. That's why you exist. And I would, as a Christian hedonist, simply add from other texts that you may enjoy making him known so that you don't feel this as a horrible burden. Oh, we got to go out and make the glories of God known in the culture. Wait, wait, burden, burden. Duty, duty. God forbid, because he will not look glorious if you do it that way. You see why the two are so important? He won't look glorious to people if you look like this is a drag. <laughs> it is the duty of every Christian to be as happy as you can in God. Now, that's number three. Uh, number four. Foundational truth number four. God's aim is that the way you make his excellencies known to a darkened culture around you is by both avoidance and engagement. Those are my key words here. That is, the way to make his excellencies known in a sin-sick culture is avoidance and engagement. And right here, I want again to be a both-and church, not an either-or church. So many churches define themselves in the one or the other. We're a a pure church, an avoidance church. We don't do this. And here is our list by which we avoid, avoid, avoid. And the other church is just total social engagement, total social involvement. And they don't even think about personal holiness. What TV shows you watch and whether you do pornography and just get out there on the streets. Well, those are not good alternatives. Because I see both in this text. Let's look at them. Verse 11 Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain. There's my avoidance word. Abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. So yes to the pure people. Yes to the separatist people. Yes to the avoidance ethic. By all means, let us teach our children there are some things you just shouldn't do or see or touch. Yes, but... Look at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent. 
among, mark that word, among the Gentiles. There's not too much separatism here. Among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. Oh, yes, we'll have a hard time for, for a while. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, how can they observe them if you're doing them in the den? Glorify God in the day of visitation. So here we are among the Gentiles, going on display with good deeds for the Gentiles to see and give glory to God. So over and over again, you get this in the New Testament. We are converted and we are created for good deeds. Titus 2.14. Like last Sunday, I made racism and racial reconciliation a cross issue. An issue of the cross. This is a cross issue. Because Titus 2.14 says, Christ died, died, the Son of God came into the world to die in order that he might purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. So now you know your reason for being and Christ's reason for dying. And they're the same. A manifestation of excellencies of God through good deeds and open mouths. Not either or. Good deeds, open mouths. God is great. Show me he's great. Show me how satisfied you are in God. Show me by laying down your life for the suffering and the weak and the orphans in, in Uganda and the unborn here and the homeless and the addicts and the AIDS victims. Show me how great your God is. You say, show me. That's what this text is about. Christ died to create showers. That's what good deeds are about. I think, and I see myself in this so much, and I want to fight it like crazy. I think we, Americans, by and large, Christians, have so domesticated the term good deeds that we equate it with watching wholesome videos, not dirty movies. Sitting quietly every evening in our houses, watching wholesome videos. That's not good deeds. That's the last thing Jesus had in mind. Retreat into your dens every night. Get comfy after supper. Spend three hours watching wholesome videos. I wish, I wish that's all you watched. But I wish for bigger things than that. Much bigger. The world is not going to be impressed by Christians who don't go to dirty movies, but watch wholesome videos every night. They are not going to be impressed or drawn to heaven. Believe me, that proves nothing about our faith. Nothing. If we want to display the all-sufficiency of God, we got to lay down some of those evenings at His feet and say, show me a need I can meet tonight. With a phone call, with a letter, with an email, with a visit. Go to the prison. Go to the neighbor. Something that might cost you a little bit, whereby you testify how worthy he is to you, not how worthy this den is to you. We have so domesticated the radical Christian life that 
I don't think it's any wonder why the gospel doesn't spread in the world the way it did in the first centuries. Because those first centuries Christians, when they became a Christian, they knew, number one, their life was on the line. They could be killed anytime freely. And then they just poured themselves out in doing good so that they were marked by how much they loved each other. And how much they would care for those that nobody else would care for. That's been true of radical Christian movements all down through the centuries. The Christians wouldn't leave during the Black Plague. Or, or would they? So, the point here, number four, is yes to avoidance of evil, but yes to engagement. Yes to purity of heart, and yes to... Um, pursuit of righteousness, yes to personal holiness, and yes to public justice, yes to culture denying, and yes to culture transforming. You think we can be a church like that? Most people hold up those and say, you gotta choose. You gotta be a culture denying people or a culture affirming people. And I say, how about being selectively culture denying and selectively culture transforming? Can we do that? That's doable to me. In Christ, if, if we're steeped in Scripture and we're satisfied with God, we can throw ourselves out there with all the risks involved and say, Use me, oh God, don't let me get contaminated by this crap that's in the world, but oh God, don't let me be so afraid of it for me and my kids that I don't get out there and touch the pain and such the evil and expose it and heal it and re- redress wrongs and do justice and love mercy. Surely we can do that. I call you to it. Number five. Briefly here, two more, quick. Submission to cultural institutions like the state, where you work, family, is not canceled out by Christian freedom and that we're citizens of heaven and we're strangers and aliens on the earth. It's not canceled out but put on a new footing of submission to God. I know that's a big sentence. And you're saying, say it again. The temptation is to think, I'm a citizen of heaven. The text says, verse 11, I'm a, I'm a stranger and an alien here. What do I give a rip about culture? I don't even live here. I'm a citizen of heaven. This world is not my home. Just a passing through, sooner the better, I'm out of here, go to hell. I think that's a mistake on the basis of this text. Because when he says in verse 13, submit yourselves For the Lord's sake to every human institution. That means when you look at the state and the laws of the state and you look at the family and the requirements of parenthood and being a child and you look at the uh, church and its discipline and you look at your job and you have to get in by eight and you have to stay there until so and so and you have to keep these rules and sit here and work there and, and everywhere you turn in the state and the workplace and the home rules, rules, regulations, everything, speed limits and red lights and all kinds of things constrain, constrain, constrain the Christian is not to kick arrogantly against those things that's what that says Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We are not self-assertive rebels who kick against every regulation that comes our way. That's not Christianity. We are a broken, humble people. But why? Why? If we're in heaven, citizens, and aliens and strangers here. Goodness, why aren't we free? Exposition, verse 16. Act as free men. You are free. You're free from the state. You're free from family. You're free from workplace constraints. You're free. What? What's the submit language then? What do you mean? We're free. Submit, we're free. Submit, we're free. 
Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. All right, now let me try to get this clear for us. Here's the, here's the way I see it. You tell me if you think this is right now. We come into the world as citizens of a, of, a, of a world in bondage to it, and maybe we comply with our workplace because we're greedy, we don't want to get fired. Maybe we comply with marital constraints because it's just easier to stay married than to get a divorce. And maybe we comply with don't wear perfume to the first service because we think it's a stupid idea, but we'll do it anyway. And we park where they want us to park because maybe we, we have all kinds of rotten motives for complying to rules and regulations around us. And then... We're delivered out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we're made free. And we're made children. We have a destiny and everything is ours. All things are yours. And at that point, our father and our master says, Now, as my child and my freedman, go back. Really? Can I just fly away? And be free in heaven? No. No. Go back. Go back. Go back. Go back in to the hard workplace. Go back into the hard family. Go back into the hard church. Go back into the hard state. Say, China or North Vietnam. Vietnam. Uh, go back. Go back. And as you go back, submit. <gasps> really? I'm a child of the king. Submit. Not the same way. Not the same way. Everything's different. New footing entirely. See the words in verse 13. For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Which is interpreted in verse 16 as free men and as bond slaves of God. So here, here you, you move into your workplace tomorrow and they have these jerky rules you have to comply with. Stupid rules, you think. You think they're stupid. Don't have that attitude. Just humble yourself and say, Lord, for your sake, for your sake, I will humbly comply and minister here. If they're really bad rules, I will humbly work towards change. But I'm not going to be um, an arrogant, rebel, kick-against-the-pricks kind of person because that's not the image that we have in the Bible. That's number five. Here's the last one quickly. Finally, Christians honor all persons and seek to do it in different ways that are not the same for everybody, but appropriate to everybody's role in life. Verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So you see, there's a special honor for the king. There's a special fear for God. There's a special kind of love for fellow Christians. But we're to honor all people. Wow. The wicked, the murderer, the rapist. Yes. How? Listen to this word from Matthew Henry 300 years ago. The wicked must be honored, not for their wickedness, but for any other quality such as wit, prudence, courage, eminency of employment, or the hoary head, white hair. Abraham, Jacob, Samuel, the prophets, the apostles, never scrupled to give due honor to bad men. And how much more than... The unborn should we honor all. So, in conclusion, let's not be a passive people. Passivity, apathy, and indifference are complicity before great 
wrong. And let's not be a church that specializes in the avoidance ethic. All right? All you parents who are vigilant over your children, don't breed up children who only think in terms of Christianity as avoid, 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 avoid. Don't do that. Oh, this has gripped me in these last 12 hours or so as I think about my son Barnabas away with these what? I don't know how many went, 50, 60, 70 teenagers went away and they're up there now. I'm just pleading, oh God, breed in my Talitha at four and breed him up Barnabas at 16 and in all of our children, breed a passion for a Christianity that is proactive, that dreams of making something of their lives for the good of the world. The lost world, the hurting world, the unborn world, the addicted world, the homeless world, the addict world, the pain world, the lonely world. Dream a dream, kids, about making something out of your lives in terms of good deeds and need meeting. Don't grow up thinking, oh, well, I gotta be sure I don't do this. 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 Oh, now I'm a good Christian. What a failure! If that's the way we rear our kids. So may the Lord give us Wisdom for how to rear up kids who laid down their lives in the service of the world from which they are gloriously free because God is their father. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, perform these things for the cause of life. Perform these things for the cause of racial harmony. Perform these things for the dozens and dozens of needs that are in the world. May Bethlehem become a church that just dreams, eats, drinks, sleeps, good deeds, visibly directed towards each other and the world. Like it says in our fighter verse, but always do good to each other and everybody. Oh God, grant I pray that we would fulfill these callings on our lives. And now dismiss us with a sense of urgency, I pray. Keep it in us. Cause us to dream big for ourselves, our families, and our church. Let's just stand for a benediction. And so may the Lord uh, grant you, all of you, to be delivered from darkness. By the sovereign, omnipotent, compelling call of His grace out of darkness into light. And may he fill your mouths and fill your hands with the words and the deeds that display his excellencies in a very sin-sick culture. To the glory of his name, the good of this world, and the satisfaction of your own soul. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.